Welcome to an evening of practice together. My name is Gina Sharp, for those of you whom I have not met. We're having um, a little bit of a, a, a variation tonight. We have um, a film company uh, filming for just, just during the time that we're sitting. So if for any reason you do not want to be filmed or to have your likeness on a, the blockbuster film of the year about meditation, <laughs> then um, we're asking that you sit over in this section and they won't film anybody who's in this section. If you do want to be filmed, then you probably don't want to be in that section, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just like that. Life is like that. So, um, as you know, we start all of our sittings at New York Insight by greeting our uh, fellow practitioners. Um, we are very, we, we're, we're very invested at New York Insight in uh, building community. So, Part of that is just that you know who's sitting next to you, so that when somebody sits on your steps on your cushion or does you know something that you don't like, you know, ah, oh, it's just Tom, right? It's not who's that person that's sitting on my couch. So, so please, um, please say hello to as many people as you can, and I'll ring the bell in a couple of minutes. So sitting together, we recall the simplicity of sitting here. This posture of sitting, just one of four, sitting, walking, standing, and lying down, is a posture that our ancestors and our ancestors before our ancestors and our ancestors, ancestors, ancestors have been using, have been assuming in this body <clears throat> for thousands of years, millions of years. The simplicity of sitting here in this moment, perhaps having some ideas about what we'd like it to be or what it should be, but knowing that we can allow those thoughts to come and go, just as our lives pulse. No need to grasp any idea 
of how we should be or try to direct anything to happen. But that we use the very material of our experience the material of our very present moment experience as the stuff of our meditation. Touching directly the essence of life just by the simple act of sitting down and paying attention. Knowing that somehow the ground of our being, the ground of being of every being in this room, in this building, in this city, in this state, in this country, in this universe, are all merged together And as we sit here together, certainly as individuals, but also as one, that we come together, we merge together in this beautiful, poignant human life. So we sit and we see and we pay very close attention moment to moment to how it is right now.
So in a moment, we're going to move into movement meditation and see if you can bring the same degree of attention that you brought in sitting to the act of moving. This way of practicing trains us to bring this care and attention to everything we do in life. Not just to sitting on a cushion or being in a meditation hall, but actually everything we do. So we answer the phone, we go to the toilet, we fix a meal, take a walk, whatever we do. This degree of attention that is trained in sitting meditation can be maintained through standing, walking, lying down, through all of our activities, no matter what they are. So as I ring the bell, pay attention to the ringing of the bell, the sound in the ear. And then we'll see what we'll want to do, whether you want to do some walking meditation, we can pull the chairs a little bit in, or simply uh, do some movement, whatever it feels right for your body to do so that you get a little bit of um, a stretch. And you also are using that activity to train the mind to be contemplative and meditative in every action that we do. So I want to welcome people who've been getting instructions in the other room, you lucky people. Um, and make a couple of announcements and then we'll uh, engage together in uh, some dialogue about Dharma. Um, and I'll give you some instructions then. <clears throat> so. Seventeen years ago, we took a leap of faith and began to offer in New York City these beautiful teachings. And our offering where we offer them uh, most humbly in the hope that they will be of benefit to all beings who hear them, and of course that ripples out into the whole world. And it was a leap of faith, because there were five of us, and I think one of 
I think I saw Joseph. Joseph, where are you? Is that he? Oh, there he is. One of, uh, one of our co-founders, Joseph Schmidt, and there were three others, one of whom has passed away, and another who opened the Downtown Meditation Center, and another who's a teacher, still a teacher here. And I think Joseph will testify to the fact that we did it on pure faith, that because these teachings are so precious and so useful that whoever came would be moved to support the to support the center and it's amazing because at, at the time we didn't even have enough money to have a center actually we had what we call the Buddha buggy and the Buddha buggy was a suitcase on wheels that contained a Buddha, a Buddha Rupa, it was nothing near the size of these guys, uh, a, a, an altar cloth, a bell, a candle, and a vase for hopefully flowers. And then 10 years ago, uh, we took another leap of faith because the community had indeed responded and said, yes, this is something that we want. We took another leap of faith and we got this space. And it's been really beautiful because the spaces and the center and all of the offerings and bringing teachers in and paying their expenses and um, having, we now have um, Joseph was our executive director for quite a while, and now we have two full-time people. Dalila is here, I think I saw her, but she may have gone. And Sabine, who are our executive director and deputy executive director. And they're paid. We actually have two paid full-time employees. And all of that is through the miracle of generosity and the... Um, open-heartedness and generosity of our students who have come and have um, support. And we've even had a few supporters who don't even practice because they think it's such a wonderful thing. And last year, our rent was raised 50%. And we did a, um, unexpectedly, and, and we did a fundraising and we actually got the support we needed and our rent is $115,000 a year. That's how much it is. So it's amazing that we've managed somehow through the strength of the Dharma and the developing and gracious generosity of all of our community to support this place, this place that we call a peaceful refuge in the midst of New York City. Now, what's interesting about all of that is that membership, so we get, we get gifts from people and people come to sittings and leave Donna and um, they give donations and um, all kinds of support. 
what's interesting is that membership, and we, we have a member, you can become a member of New York Insight. Membership is the smallest category of giving. And we can't figure it out. We don't understand why, but it is what it is. So we've decided every year to have a membership drive because I think also when people donate to the center, they think it automatically makes them members. But we have a specific way of giving as a member. And there are, um, there, there are advantages. So you get access, access to student-teacher meetings. You get invitations to free special events. You get priority pre-registration for popular events. And a 20% discount on all registrations. And memberships start at $10 a month. And it's only by growing our membership that New York Insight will continue to flourish. So I'd really, so I, all of that is a preamble to telling you that we're having a membership drive. And that we're hoping that if you have um, experienced the benefit of these teachings, and you believe that uh, these teachings are not only good for you, but that they are um, precious in the sense that they ripple out beyond just our practice. Because every single person that you meet, because of your meditation practice and its the power of its transformation, its transformational effect, that it actually affects the whole world. I think it's the poet Rumi who says that we are the ocean and we're also a drop in the ocean. So there's a, there's a breathing in and breathing out that, make, that brings us all together. Our, when we pay attention to our breath, we begin to figure this out. We begin to understand how we are all connected inexorably. We cannot fall from this net of life to which we all belong. And so it's a way of asking you if you feel that these teachings are indeed helpful to our world. And we're, we're, we're in a pretty interesting world at the moment, right? With climate change and wars and so much <laughs> hatred in the world that we can almost touch, it's so palpable. If you feel that these teachings really have an effect on you and on the world, we invite you to, you're already a member of our community by being here, but we invite you to become a member of New York Insight and really be a part of um, this beautiful offering of teachings to empower us in our clarity, in our wisdom, in our patience, in our kindness, in our compassion, in all of those beautiful qualities that seem to arrive, that we seem to invite in 
just by the by virtue of sitting down, pausing, and becoming intimate with our minds. So that's all by way of asking you to become a member of New York Insight. And if you would like to, you can go on the website and there, and it will tell you, I'm sure it will tell you there how you can do that. And as you know, um, as teachers, we depend on your support also because New York Insight doesn't pay us as teachers. So uh, we have a box be behind you. Uh, if you, again, are so moved uh, and would like to contribute to the teachers and to New York Insight, not as a member, but just as a contribution, we would be very grateful. So thank you. So on Tuesday nights when I teach, I, um, I like to give the opportunity for you to uh, write a, a Dharma talk with me by asking questions and engaging in reflection on whatever your questions are. And a couple, I'd like to make a couple of, give a couple of instructions about it. The first instruction is that whatever question is in your mind, don't think that it's too stupid, too simple, too anything to ask, because I can guarantee you that if you have a question, somebody else in the room, at least one other person in the room, has the very same question and will be very grateful to you for asking it. Secondly, I'd like you to uh, continue to pay attention to your body while we're doing this, because sometimes when we do question and answers, or even if you, um, even if you are listening to a Dharma talk, you can very quickly go up into your head. And the Dharma is not meant to be that. The Dharma is meant to be completely embodied, to be felt in every cell of your being. So practice while you're listening to the question and any conversation I'm having with one person, know that it's for you too. It's not that person's problem. Because as human beings, the connection between us doesn't break. And so somebody else's question has something for you. And if you really pay attention to it, you will find that beautiful kernel that's in there for you. Even if you don't like what I'm saying or answering or you don't like the question that the person is asking, even that can be a practice. You can look at your own mind and feel the impatience or the judgment or the lack of compassion or the very much compassion or the kindness or whatever you're feeling, you can feel that without judgment and enter completely into what's happening because there's something here for you too. What, whatever it is, even if it's your own internal practice that's happening. 
Is that a deal? Just not. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. So, and, and what I'd like to do on these evenings is not give you a direct answer, so just be warned about that. Um, that it's not a question and answer in the sense that you have the question and I have the answer, because most of the time you already have the answer, you just don't know it yet. And so what we're trying to do is to find a way for you to find your own answers, because we, I want you empowered in your practice to know what you know, and you know a lot. So that's my preamble. So please feel invited. I'm reading um, Mark Epstein's newest book, and you know, and before that, I read another one that was his process of going through Buddhism. It's been very helpful, but he talks about um, the words, the the words of the Buddha, or the teachings, or the sutra. And I realize I know very little about original texts Mm. to read. Mm. Is it? And I always assume. And here's the thing about not knowing enough that maybe that's too difficult to read. But finally, I'm really curious, but I don't know what it is. You know, what's See, what, now what you're going to make are. me give you an answer. Darn. Yeah. yeah. So, first of all, how long have you been practicing? I've been reading for years and years and You've years. You've been reading for years. And how long have you been and practicing? And I found it very difficult to ever start a practice of meditating. Mm-hmm. But I recently had a knee replacement. I was home. I was, and I said, this is the perfect moment. So this has been going on for about a month. That so you've I'm, been practicing I'm really for trying a month. To, and I'm... I'm I do my exercises. Listen to the Dharma seed, that's a wonderful thing. You know, uh-huh. listening to... Uh-huh. Jack Cornfield or something, uh-huh. and uh, meditating, and I come here whenever I can, and I'm very happy mm-hmm. that I was, I guess, wise enough to do that at, at a time like this, you know, because mm. it's been very, very good. So I'm tempted to not give you an answer. <laughs> I found it. Um, and here's why. I'm going to give you an answer, just so you can relax. But I'm tempted not to give you an answer. And here's why. Because, uh, were you in the beginner's room or were you here? Okay. So you, you'll recall that I said that the Dharma is meant to be embodied, right? That it's not up in our heads. And in a lot of ways, we, you know, who has been attracted to the Dharma and to practice in our Western world have been people who are pretty heady, right? And so we've been, we teach the, and, and you're so right, you know, we've been receiving the teachings through our teachers, mostly our Western teachers, who some of them received their teachings from monastics, but the the, te- the actual teachings that were written down that in this Theravada tradition um, we base our teachings on called the Pali Canon 
Um, even, you know, those are supposed to be the direct words of the Buddha. But then there are lots of commentaries. And you can't even completely rely on them as the direct words of the Buddha because they're 2,000 years old, right? Because they didn't start getting written down until 500 years after he passed away. And, and so they're distilled through the memories and attitudes, in some ways, of the people who started writing them down and then, you know, they got translated and, you know, so we're, I suspect we're getting a pretty good indication of the teachings of the Buddha, but it's hard to say what the teaching, what the actual teachings of the Buddha were. But I think it is worthwhile to read what the, the Pali Canon, and the Pali Canon is a set of three kinds of books. One is the suttas of the Buddha, the discourses. Another is the Abhidhamma, which is the Buddhist psychology. And the third is the, um, the Vinaya, which is the rules for the monks to live by, 227 rules. But I asked you why, how long you've been practicing because I think that if we just read, we can get awfully tied up. First of all, because you're reading a lot of different people's opinions about what the Buddha said. And then even when you read the, what the Buddha said, you're not sure it's what the Buddha said. Because there are some things in the suttas that I doubt the Buddha said. But somehow, through different cultures, they've gotten inserted in them. But I'd like you to ask yourself a question. And that is, what draws you? And I can ask you, what draws you to this? What, what made you come tonight? Well, only reading. Sorry? I, I said only reading. And eventually, I think understanding things has changed my life. You understand that? No, I said only with the... I've, I've meditated over the years. I just have never had a solid practice. But through the readings and the listening and coming, coming to things over the years, um, I have achieved certain things that I never thought I could that have changed my life. For example, the most difficult thing when I first read it and I thought I would never be able to do was letting go. Mm -hmm. And now on a regular basis, I had a an incident with someone and I, I you know, fought, fought for it and didn't get exactly what I want and I walked out and let it go. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not that I wouldn't try, but mm -hmm. I let it go. Mm -hmm. To see myself be able to do that is extraordinary for me. So I absolutely believe in that. And I also believe that um, the thing about letting go, I'm getting older, um, eventually leads to letting go of life. I believe that. And I think, so I think a lot about that. And I think it will be very, very helpful. Necessary, almost. Okay. So, if you will practice what you read, and what I mean by that is, even if it's Mark's book, or Jack's book, or whoever's book you're reading, or the suttas, that the way to read the Dharma is not like a novel, 
but to read a paragraph and reflect on it for a week or a month or a year, depending on the intensity of it, and see how that is for you. Because what, because the Dharma, you may have noticed, is holographic. You can look at it two ways. It's either holographic or every, every topic of the Dharma, every piece of the Dharma is like a fractal of the whole Dharma. So if you just take one door, one Dharma door, one Dharma teaching, like just as you were saying, the teaching of letting go, and you just do that, and maybe there's a particular teacher or writer who expresses it in a way that calls you and that speaks to you. So, you know, it doesn't matter who. If you can take that teaching, to that a small piece of the teaching, and say, I'm going to do that for a year, you will learn more than you could learn devouring every single Dharma book in that year. And to practice, this is a community center, and I recognize that some people don't have a life that allows them to go on retreats or, or allows them to take a lot of time off, etc. But to even go on a five-day retreat or a seven-day retreat or a ten-day retreat or a three-day retreat, whatever you can, to really do some um, sustained practice that allows the mind to get really still because there's nothing more powerful than seeing for yourself. And there's a way in which all of these books, all of these teachings, all of the Dharma talks, they're all pointing to that. Every single one. As, as a teacher, that's always what I'm trying to point to. And I certainly know that many of my colleagues are on the same track that to empower the student to see their own wisdom. That's the, and, and we see that by the power of the minds being able to rest and to see deeply. And there's nothing more suitable or more um, advantageous than sitting for a sustained period of time to allow the mind, the sediment of the mind, to uh, fall to the bottom and allow some clarity. So I hope, good luck. Very quiet tonight for a New York crowd. My goodness. Wow. I've been practicing um, since April. I have a daily practice. I might have missed one or two, but I practice 40 minutes a day. I came here because um, I wanted to stop feeling miserable. Um, I came to a place in my life where I decided I needed to let go 
in a way I hadn't before. The problem that I have, I'm taking a class on Thursdays in the morning um, with, uh, where we're studying some of the poetry of the Buddha. Dhammapada. Yes. The sayings of the Buddha. Yes. And the teacher asked us to read when he was reading to then tell us how we felt. Sorry? To tell him how we felt when we re read the first set of poems. And what I said was, and this is a, um, when I listen to the Dharma talk here from the teachers, I feel them in my heart most times. I feel the kindness, I feel the generosity, I feel the calm. I love coming here on Tuesday nights and Sundays sometimes. But the minute I get into studying the words of the Buddha, mm. I feel coldness. Mm. I feel this a scientific kind of quality to it that I can't feel a heart connection to. I was raised in a, a different religion mm -hmm. where although I did not always agree with what I was taught, I felt that heart connection. I still do sometimes when I go. Mm -hmm. And the way I feel here. Mm -hmm. And I find a lot of times the teachings are heavy. 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 Mm -hmm. Like the 12 this, the 10 that. <laughs> and the antithesis of what I think the Buddha intended. The what of what the Buddha the intended? Antithesis, the antithesis. The verse, uh -huh. Uh -huh. which uh -huh. is not to be in our mind, in our head, mm -hmm. in our ego, mm -hmm. but to be in our hearts. Mm -hmm. But when I study or listen, not tonight with the teachers, but to any weekend retreats I've been to where there's a study of the Dharma, I feel like I'm in medical school. Oh. And oh. I, I, not that medical school's a bad thing, but <laughs> I would like to feel this heart connection in this study. Hmm. Um, and other, when I mentioned it in the class, Quite a few people were kind of taken back by it. They said they felt this feeling. And I... So can I ask you how you work with that? Well, I, I don't know. I, I get kind of closed down. Mm-hmm. And, and then what do you do when you get closed down? I, I want to run out. I, I told And then the what do you do? I stayed. And then what do you do? Um... I'm talking here about it. Sorry? I'm talking here about it. Okay. So do you pay attention to what it feels like to be disconnected? Yes. So, so when the teaching, when, when you're hearing, so, you know, so the, do you remember the first saying of the Buddha? The first saying? Mm-hmm. Well, the I do first, remember The first some... one of the Dhammapada? Mm-hmm. No, but I do remember something that was said that I felt very turned off by. Okay, which was so I'm going to, yeah. The word torture, you'll be tortured. You Sorry? Would, it, there was the word torture in one of the verses that the, a, a, a human being who is, um, does not follow the way of purity of mind will be tortured by this. Hmm. And I thought, oh my God, this is cruel. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and all I could feel was guilt. Um, oh, God. There seemed to be, 
there seemed to be a dichotomy, duality. Yeah. Okay. Which I get it. Is so, the reverse of what so I thought first the of all, was. First mm -hmm. of all, so many of these, you're reading, tra just, just as we were saying before, you're reading translations of translations of translations yes. of translations. So if somebody uses the word torture, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the word that the Buddha used. So that's the first thing. Of course. Right? So, so, we, so we understand the exigencies of language and the limitations of them in the sense that we use words w which are very limited and which are subject to perception because we all have different yes. understandings about the same word or language. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that, so, so, the, first, so the first verse, as I remember, I'll, I'll only say a part of it is, mind is the forerunner of all things. Yes. Right? So when you hear, mind is the forerunner of all things, how does that feel to you? I know it to be true. <laughs> you know it to be true. Yes. Does it stop you in your tracks? Yes. It doesn't feel kind. It doesn't feel kind. You don't feel that mind is the forerunner. What do you think is the forerunner of all things? Thoughts. So mind. what's the difference between mind and thoughts? I'm not sure. It's a gentler word, I suppose. It's a what? Gentler word. Gentler word. Thoughts. Okay. So if I said thoughts are the forerunners of all things, how would that strike you? Softer. So, so we're talking semantics now, not mm -hmm. meaning. You're talking about words, yes. We're talking about words, not meaning. So what would it feel like? Mm-hmm to drop way down mm -hmm. into your heart and into your belly and to contemplate mind, just mind, just whatever that word means to you, mind. How, when I say mind, tell me what you feel in your belly. Destructive. Sorry? Destructive. Destructive. Is there an association that you feel? Between mind and being destructive? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What is that? Do you mind sharing it? Um, no. I will share it. Um, one of the reasons I came here is because um, I started to have physical symptoms that I thought I was sick, and I wasn't. Mm -hmm. They were created by... It was psychosomatic. Created by mind. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> and so to, um, to understand that mind is the forerunner of all things seems cruel, seems unkind. What does it seem like to you? Cold. It seems cold. And do you actually have a sense of coldness in your body or in your heart? when you say that? No, it's just... Um, um, 
unnurturing. It, it's it's just, what? It's very matter of fact. There's nothing nurturing about it. About mind. About about the statement. It just there. About the statement. Yes. So, so if I say thoughts are the forerunner of all things, you said that doesn't feel as bad. No. So, what would it be like for you? to contemplate just that sentence. And when I say contemplate, I don't mean in your mind. Mm -hmm. I mean to contemplate it throughout your whole body, through in your heart, and to see what appears. And what I'm asking you to do, you can do, it doesn't have to be with the sentence. It can be with anything in the Dharma that the contemplation of the Dharma is not about what we think about the words, mm -hmm. but, but what the feeling is that arises in our being when we hear the words. And if there's a coldness that comes into your heart or your body mm -hmm. when you hear that sentence, the work starts right there. It doesn't start by now, what might feel like the kindest thing for me to do is to say, oh, it's okay, just say, thoughts are the forerunner of all things. Forget about mind, right? Mm -hmm. And it's possible that that might be appropriate. I don't mm -hmm. know you well. But what might be more um, fruitful and productive for you is for you to actually feel those feelings and not as a way to punish yourself. Mm -hmm but as a way to understand clearly what's happening in this organism. So that after a while, no feeling is unacceptable. If you feel cold or you feel something is cruel and there's a reaction in the body and the mind and the heart, our practice is to go right into that. Mm -hmm. Not to recoil from it and say, oh, I can't stand that. Mm -hmm. But of course, it takes skill because one of, the, one of the ways in which we work with what's difficult is not necessarily by taking it and just slathering ourselves with it, mm -hmm. but taking a small piece of it. So if there's a feeling of, oh, that feels cold and cruel, can you take a small piece of that coldness and a small piece of that cruelty and actually see what's happening in the mind and the body and the heart. So that after a while, what we're learning is not to turn away from anything that is part of what makes us alive. And all of the difficulties that we have are, can sometimes be a really beautiful gift if we know how to work with it. And what begins to happen is we don't have to close our hearts or our minds down to anything mm -hmm. because the response or the reaction that we have to something becomes the very material, the very stuff of our practice. So if there's, um, a, there's clearly something happening mm -hmm. with the psychosomatic and the, the, the word mind, Torture was a big one. And torture. So is that there. something that you want to be bound to? 
all your life. So you can't even hear the word torture. You can't even hear the word mind. You can't even hear the word whatever words. Or do you want to be free? So freedom mm-hmm. does not imply partial. <laughs> yes, it's complete and total freedom is what right. we're going for. Mm-hmm. Right? So we don't want to have to recoil because somebody used a particular word. We want to investigate, what is that? Why is it every time I hear that word mind, I go into this cold sweat? Why is it every time I hear that word mind, I just want to scream and go running out of the room? Mm-hmm. That's being bound. Yes. Right? So, and, and the way that we inch by inch work towards freedom is we let it in, little by little by little. Enough so that it doesn't overwhelm us or drown us, Mm-hmm. But enough so that we build courage, we build fortitude, we build perseverance, we build patience, we build openness, we, get, we create a huge space around us that whatever is there is okay. And whatever our reaction to it, it's okay. Even if it's vile, even if the reaction is totally vile, we don't want to have to turn away from anything or we want to be able to work with it mm-hmm. and hopefully build wisdom so that we can respond appropriately to whatever is arising. Yes. Okay. That's why I came here. Okay. Good. Well, I'm and so I, happy you're I here. I thank you very much. You're very, welcome. very, very enlightening to me. Thank you. Um, thank you. You're welcome, Sue. Let's see if there's anyone else first. This is just an extraordinary coincidence based on this, and it's very short. But what I, when I read, and I do tend to take an intellectual, when I read and read, I I can't understand. When I read and read and read on a subject, I you know, go from one thing to another, and I have an aha moment. And I just had an aha moment that's related to this, uh, where Mark Epstein was explaining that for the Buddha, mind and heart are the same thing, or the word is the same, something, is that true? And therefore, I'm listening to this, and when you're saying it, it's cold in that, and thinking, well, the heart is part of that. In so I'd rather, if you're going to, if you speak to me and not have cross-talk I'm sorry, I'm, I apologize that's okay so it's, thank you for that mind-heart in, uh, in Pali is citta C-I-T-T-A and, and in Sanskrit and it, it means both there's no uh, in the Asian languages as I understand it they're, they're, they're not separate words for mind and heart but mind and heart are together. So thank you for the thank you for the comment. Initially um, I felt really overwhelmed by the suttas and um, um, if it's okay to mention that when someone mentioned the numbers and things like that. And then I um, when I learned how how much of an oral tradition it was and how people had to 
memorize this thing, I realized that these numbers kind of help people to to memorize memorize it. And so there's there's a way that um, it shifted for me, and I started to see like the compassion in the Dharma because uh, the the way that these numbers kind of end up panning out to to land where they do. Um, it, 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 it helps it to almost, you know, stay on the heart longer eventually over time. And I just, um, I'm just appreciating that, that um, sort of that alignment of how that mm. adds up in the yeah. teachings. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so, you know, the, the um, thank you for mentioning it's a, it is an oral tradition. And... But of course, that's not how we we learn these days. But it is the the you know the four noble truths and the three characteristics and the five aggregates and the five hindrances and the six sense bases and the seven factors of awakening and the eightfold path and the four noble truths and the ten paramis and you know all of that is a it, it is a way of um, of structuring the teachings so that you understand it. But for for me, you know, when students ask me about that. What, what I basically say is if you know the Four Noble Truths, but knowing the Four Noble Truths doesn't mean that you know how to recite them. It means that when you say there is suffering, that is a heartfelt understanding. And the truth that there is suffering means that we have really understood our own suffering and by understanding our own suffering, that we've understood the suffering of humanity, that what it, what it means to be in a human body with a human mind and a human, human heart that has known suffering and that every single one of those body, mind, heart organisms understands suffering, has seen suffering. That when we say there's a second noble truth and that noble truth is that the cause of suffering is the clinging mind or the clinging heart, that we really know that truth because we've, we know our own clinging. We know our own attachment. And we understand the, the connection between our clinging and the arising of suffering in the mind and heart. And in the third, the third noble truth, there is freedom from suffering. There's liberation. We understand again, and we can recite these truths because we've seen it for ourselves. That we've, we've experienced, we've tasted even the smallest amount of freedom. And we've seen that freedom, we've tasted that freedom because there was a moment in which we were not clinging. And then when we come to the fourth truth, which is that there is, a, there is a, a path to the end of suffering, we know that too because we understand living a life of integrity. We understand the training of the mind through meditation. And we've seen the wisdom. So the wisdom, integrity, and meditation of the Eightfold Path is not something that we can recite, but something that we've practiced, we've walked the path, we know it step by step by step by step by step, 
what we've been doing. So we have, a, we have the framework to be reminded in a way of what the teaching is. But the way we remember it is what we were saying before, that it's not just reading it, but that each time we see a piece, a fractal of dharma, that the way it gets into our cells is because we reflect on it, we, we practice with it, we vow to see it, we vow to understand it, and, we, and, and our vows are based not on some kind of, um, you know, whatever, you know, that I'll get to it, but it's some really deep resolve that I will understand this. And understanding the Dharma is understanding this. Four Noble Truths are not out there. They're in here. This is it. This is it. There's no other way to know. So, so, the, so yes, we have the, the frameworks, and, and Imani is absolutely right, that there is a, there's a way in which having those frameworks, those lists, do help us to remember what it is we're supposed to remember. But the true cell memory has to do with, oh, yeah, this is suffering. Something arises in your experience, and... And instead of saying, who did that to me and why did they do it and you know, I'm going to get that person and I'll never forgive them, say, oh, wow, this is suffering. This is suffering. First Noble Truth just pops right up there. And, and that kind of understanding helps you, helps you to, to uh, become compassionate because you understand the suffering not only of yourself, but of all beings, and so on and so on. So it's so the so the 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 structure is very helpful in that because sometimes in the midst of your suffering you go, oh yeah what was that first noble truth yeah oh yeah here it is, right? Or when you when you've forgotten. It kind of pops into your mind. Oh, remember, first noble truth, this is suffering. But that's the way we work with it. It's not kind of a story. That, And yeah, there are parts of the Dharma that we don't want to hear, right? Because it means we have work to do. We have work to do. And usually it's work that we've been neglecting for a lifetime so we don't want to hear it, right? But it's calling us. It's like, a, it's like a siren calling us to practice, calling us, reminding us, oh, yeah, there's work to do. There's work to do. Uh, lately, I've been in this state, which uh, I label excitement, Mm. and I'm trying to understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not even sure whether excitement is like a legitimate label or there's something more basic like greed or aversion. Uh-huh. But basically it happens after some very positive or very negative event 
you know, mm -hmm. that I think is very positive or very negative happens. Mm -hmm. Like uh, the company, uh, I have a small company uh, with a co-founder and sometimes we get a contract and like, you know, that's very exciting and, you know, I think it's very positive. And for a few days, I noticed lots of thoughts regarding that event and mm -hmm. where it may lead. So that's very exciting. Mm -hmm. And I'm in my head. Mm -hmm. uh, then I notice that passes away, uh, as in I'm not really thinking about the event or my company, but I'm still excited. <laughs> uh, and I'm thinking about other things. Uh -huh. Like, you know, I'm really distracted, uh -huh. thinking about dinner or my sits don't, my mind doesn't settle as much. And it can be kind of like weeks before I kind of like go back to a more settled state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you have any... What's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's the problem? No real problem, I guess. I'm just trying to <laughs> understand what's the driver... How would you do that? Uh, sit more. See what I mean? Everybody has their, their own wisdom, yeah. What else? So, so do you, when you're feeling that, can you describe what that, what you call excitement, which I'm thinking in my mind is restlessness or agitation? Yes. Can, can you actually pay attention to what that feels like? Can you pay attention to what that excite, what you call excitement, feels like, and you can pay attention with in three centers of your being. One is your mind, one is your heart, and one is your body, and the third is your body. So, if if there's agitation or restlessness, and again, you know, we won't mince, we won't worry about the words. You feel what you're feeling. Can you actually give it enough space? So with restlessness, if it's restlessness, you give your, it's like a cow in a pasture. You give it a huge pasture to, to be there. If you try to clamp down on it, it will just get more restless. So, so one way to give it a really huge pasture is to pay attention to it. And so I, I wasn't really being funny when I said, what's the problem? Because if whatever state is coming up can become your object of meditation, right? Rather than the object of your derision. Like, oh, I'm excited. This state of excitement is here. Why is it here? I don't want it to be here. I want to calm down. What's wrong with me? Right? It's not a problem if it becomes an object of meditation. Oh, that's what's here now. Restlessness or excitement or agitation or however we want to language it. What does that feel like? What does it feel like to you? What does it feel like? So when I come back to awareness, I notice that my mind has been kind of like very high up. No, no, now. What does it feel like? Right now? Yeah. Uh, do you still, do you feel excitement? A little bit. Uh, okay, good. Yes. So what does it feel like? 
like something in my head is going very fast. Okay, so how does that feel? A bit dis disembodied. Disembodied. What like does I'm disembodied feel like? Like floating, not, not present. Not present. Is there, is there something in your body that you actually feel? Or do you actually do feel cut off from your body? Uh, when I feel my body, the excitement kind of dampens down. I get less excited okay. when I pay attention. Okay, so how does it feel for your bottom to be on your chair? Uh, pretty comfortable. <laughs> no, that's not what I was after. I was after what sensations you're actually feeling when your buttocks contact the chair. Um, what do you feel? Warmth. Good. Some pressure. Pressure. Some softness. Softness. Weight. Weight. Is it heavy? Not so much, no. So it's not hard, it's soft. Is there any flow in the body? I'm noticing tension. Yes, in my legs and my arms. Tension? Yes. And what does tension feel like? Like clinging. Hmm? Like clinging. Like clinging, okay. Yes. So, and where is that in your arms? Uh, lots of places, now that I pay attention. Sorry? Lots of places, now that lots I pay attention. Lots of places. But pay attention to one place at a time. Okay, like my shoulders. Okay, that's fine. What's that? What do your shoulders feel like? Uh, high, constricted. Mm -hmm. Okay, so do you still feel excited? No. Oh, oh no excitement. What's happened to the excitement? I don't know, it's just not there right now. Ooh. Look at that. Seriously, that it's so it's that was beautiful. Thank you for doing that because it's a real demonstration of how and we we weren't trying to get rid of your excitement, right? That's very important. We were not trying to get rid of your excitement. We were investigating what it feels like to feel excited. Yes. And what did we notice? We noticed that as soon as we start investigating what it feels like, it's ephemeral. It moves, it shifts, it changes, and it doesn't mean it's not going to come back. But something that we tried to solidify and say, I'm excited, is nothing like that. Everything is moving and flowing and shifting and turning over and coming back and it's, it's beautiful. Life is beautiful in this flow that we're constantly having. Nothing is standing still. It's all moving, shaking and vibrating. Can't you feel it? Do you actually feel that you're actually bodies sitting here solid and not moving and not changing? Or can you, as soon as you turn to these feelings that you're having of excitement or aversion or I hate that word or whatever it is that you've all been saying that it's just passing it's just passing 
flitting, flitting, moving, life, going by, going by, going by, and how we want to just hold it. We want to wrestle it to the ground and make it something solid. And it's not. And in that you find freedom. In that understanding you find freedom because no state is a state. It's all stage. We have stages. We don't have states. Because states are very fixed. There's nothing fixed in this world. Nothing. So even this anxiety, oh, so I had this really good fortune in my business and now I'm excited. Yeah, maybe. Now where are you? Now where are you? Now where are you? Now where are you? And can you pay attention so that you actually notice that? So that you're actually not grabbing or clinging to a particular state and saying, yep, that's me, the excited one. Deepak the excited. (laughs) Right? Right? Yes. Deepak the excited. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) But we do that all the time. And it's not that the excitement won't come back. But why are you making a problem of it? When you can, you can actually, oh, this is excitement. I haven't looked at excitement for a while. Wow, I can look at excitement now. What's that like? Right? Oh, just, oh, there goes excitement. Not anymore. Right? Now it's Deepak the depressed. <laughs> right? Yep. Thank you. You're welcome. So we have to end there. So thank you all for your practice, for your attention, for your indulging me with questions, with really beautiful questions. Thank you all. And when we sit and practice and reflect and entertain the Dharma, entertain the possibility of being Dharma, not just knowing or studying Dharma, but actually being Dharma from moment to moment to moment to moment with a kind heart. We create a field of goodness, a field of merit. And instead of holding that to ourselves, we cast it out across the whole world and cover all beings with this goodness. So we dedicate the merit of our practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception. May all beings be happy and peaceful, safe from harm, healthy and strong, and live with complete ease, free from suffering and free. May there be peace in this world.
Peace. Thank you. Good night.